Póngale, póngale, Whitney. Oi, oi. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. But this little piggy was the boogie woogie piggy, and he boogie woogie all the way home. This little piggy had roast beef. This little piggy had none. But this little piggy was a boogie woogie piggy, and he did the lindy all the way home. Piggly wiggy piggy. Oi, oi. Boogly woogie boogie. Oi, 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 oi. The boogly piggly with the oink oink. This little piggy dug to be. This piggy thought the fault was divine. But this little piggy was a happy little piggy and he boogie woogie all of the time. And good evening, everybody. It is Saturday night, July 17th, year 2010. I'm Walton Hughes, and in yeah. Florida, my co-host. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Walden, and Merry Christmas to you. Same here. We have two guests tonight. We've got double duty. I've never talked with two. Well, actually, I'll be talking with three people at the same time. Um, John and Larry Gassman are with us. Can you hear us any better than you did earlier? What? 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 Hello. <laughs> No, you're you okay. Me? Can you hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I hope you're getting paid for the Verizon plug. Explain your Christmas comment. Well, it's Christmas in July, and for... Only on Lux Radio Theater. I beg your pardon? Only on Lux Radio Theater. It's Christmas in July? Yeah. No, 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 no. Walden's Saturday night show is Christmas in July for the whole month of July. And if I know Walden well enough, he's going to get another two weeks out of it. I would. Yeah, he I does. Would. He gets two weeks out of his birthday. He gets eight weeks out of Christmas, and there's no reason why he shouldn't extend it a little bit. Mm-hmm. What happened about five years ago, one of our uh, listeners said, it is so hot in Arizona, 115 degrees. Why don't you play some Christmas shows in July to help cool off the audience? So we have kept that as a tradition. That's uh-huh. cool. Now you can, you can tell that I don't always get a chance to listen, can't you? Yeah, oh, well, that's, that's okay. I mean, it's only been going on for five years, right? That's, well, then this is the that's true. On for that request, but uh, we hunkered down here with the live studio in Costa Mesa for eight, so that's not too bad. Yeah, that's not too bad. It was Lynn Noyes, one of our DJs in Phoenix, Arizona, who <laughs> said, you know, 188 degrees out here is a little rough, so. Please help cool us off. Okay, well, I have to introduce the two of you. And for the people who are listening tonight, I'm having this challenge of not being able to distinguish one voice from another. So if I resort to, hey, you, it's only because I don't know which of the Gasmans I am talking with. We and have Larry you both and... both answer. You'll both answer anyway. Yeah. Isn't that right. true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, I won't have to worry about it then. No, good luck. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're Larry and John Gassman, that, uh, those are names many of you will recognize. They are our old-time radio experts who sit side-by-side side with Walden. We've got a, the, the dynamic trio here. Um, authorities, radio show hosts, they are into everything. Um, the... Tell the uh, radio show that they have, same time, same station, is heard here on Yesterday USA. It is heard on another internet 
radio station. You'll be able to tell me about that in just a minute. And for California listeners, are you still broadcasting on the radio out there? No. You are not? No, that stopped in 2000. 2001, maybe. It stopped about eight or nine years ago. Long time ago. Okay, I was somehow had in my mind that you had hopped back for a while on the oh, regular radio, and then we did, went off We did again. for about a year, but but it, it ended in like 2000, 2000 for the the regular show, uh, which they, they changed to a news talk format, so we hooked on with another station for about a year, and then when Larry got married, uh, uh, we put everything in storage, and that kind of ended the radio shows on the air for a while, and then this year we started doing the internet show. The internet show on, on two different stations. Actually, it's four or five. But it's four or five plus a, a radio station in New Mexico. Deliver me. See, I did not do my homework well enough here. Okay, well, we are talking with two all-time radio personalities for sure. Um, they've got at least 400 interviews completed with all-time radio personalities, performers, industry members, authors, actors, writers, everybody who's associated with all-time radio. Um, and also collectors of unusual experiences, and we'll cover some of those unusual experiences tonight. By the Hi way, night. our next interview is slated to, to be heard on Yesterday USA starting next Saturday. Uh, we're we're going to have Bob Mott on, and he just wrote a book about, oh, three, well, I guess near the end of 2009, and it's, it's uh, the, uh, what is it called? Shoot. It all has to do with radio acting, or acting in theater, or acting in general, how to get up in front of people. And it's really pretty interesting. He shows you how to do that. Uh, he, he says that speaking in front of people is one of the scariest things for most Americans. And so he tells you how to do, do that. He gives you some ideas, puts some radio little skits in uh -huh. the book, and goes through that. It's kind of a how-to book. And it's really pretty neat. So we'll chat with him for about a half hour next week. Oh, that is really yeah. cool. Now, am I, oh, I go out on a limb here because I'm so new to old-time radio. Is Bob Mott the person who uh, worked with sound effects also? Yes. Ah. He, he was actually a comedy writer in uh, when, first in college in New York and, and also was doing that even while he was doing some sound effects when he began in 1952. And he still writes today. He's written about four or five books. Uh, his sound effects collection is now has been given to somebody else, so he doesn't have it anymore. Uh -huh. but, but he's still active writing and still active talking to people about sound effects. Well, that is going to be one very cool interview. Um, I, I have to put that one on my list. I love listening to people. I'm a talk show junkie. So oh, wow. Good for you. I really am. That's, um, I, I guess that's the best way to describe it is a, is a talk show junkie. Mm -hmm. but among the unusual experiences that we're going to talk about tonight, uh, you are or have been, Rose Parade commentators. Um, you did a Nike ad. Mm -hmm. I need to hear about the TV show To Tell the Truth, the Vietnam documentary. And for both of you, I didn't realize this. Larry, I said driving a car for you. But John replied and said, ooh, me too. We both drove cars. Well, How, would you tell people why that's unusual for the two of you? Well... It's like, I guess it's close. It's like a blind person being an air traffic controller. There aren't too many of them around. There are not too many of them around. And probably less after the the deed gets done. <laughs> but but you know, it, it's it's like a, a blind person 
describing a rose parade. You don't see that many of them doing it. Now, some of them will do it once they get prepared and once they get some help, etc. And uh, the same thing is true for us in terms of driving a car. Obviously, we couldn't do it without sighted assistance. Uh, for me, uh, I was in a car and I was able to drive around a parking lot and then up and down the street. And then I actually got to turn it around and put it back into somebody's driveway. Now, certainly, while I was doing that, somebody was telling me exactly what to do. Back up. Okay, good. Make a left. Whoops. Make a bigger left. Things like that. You know, so I was getting some direction, uh, and we've got some pictures and things like that to prove it. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. I'm, uh, I've done it on a two, well, two or three occasions. The other time was the first time was in 2001. And I was with Melinda. We were married at the time, and we were up visiting her girlfriend in Placerville. Maybe that's changed? What? You said married at the time. <laughs> I will continue as if you weren't even there, and if this continues, you won't be. <laughs> I need to interrupt here for just a second. Not everybody knows that the two of you are identical twins and that the two of you are blind. So they, that they do driving, driving a car and that's what I was, I was kind of coming in the back door on this one, why driving a car is so special for the two of you. Oh. And you just kind of walked over. Well, that's, that's true, yeah. Well, the first time I did it, I mean, you know, Melinda's girlfriend, Lori, is just awesome. And she, I mean, you know, she said, anytime you want to drive a car, let me know. So we finally got up to her house, and she said, do you still want to drive? And I said, sure. And so we, she's got a van, and so we were at the bottom of her driveway. Her driveway's about a quarter of a mile long. And it's not rural, but it's it's sort of in the country a little bit. It, it's not like you have cars whizzing by on the street. And so she said, okay, so Melinda's in the back seat, and Lori's to my right. And she said, okay, I'm going to give you some description. Now, I should tell the audience also, Melinda was not going to give me much verbal description because Melinda's blind as well. And so she said, now, do you know the difference between a break and, uh, uh, well, the brakes? Do you know the difference? I said, well, I know that the one on the right, you push it and it goes. And the one on the left, you, you push it and it stops. She said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> and so so she said, no, go ahead. So I start to, to, to push the accelerator and the car is starting to go. She said, okay, let's see you stop. I went, <clears throat> and I I didn't realize, because I don't watch people when they drive. I can't. I, don't, I didn't realize there are degrees of stoppage. Uh-huh. You, you push the brake a little bit. You don't push it all the way down to the floor. Well, that's what I did, and so Melinda probably still has terminal whiplash. Uh, but finally we got all that squared away and we started driving up this quarter mile driveway and Lori says, oh, cool, you just went between two cars. And she didn't tell me that to begin with. She told me after I'd already done it. So she said, okay, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I just missed a rock, a huge boulder type rock. She said, make a right, make a right, good, okay, fine. I missed the boulder, we keep going. I got a little more confidence, drove a little faster. She said, okay, now we're coming up to the house, so you need to slow down. Uh, slow down. Slow, okay, fine. Slow down. Good. I slow down, and her 14-year-old son of the time walks out of the house, doesn't look to see who's driving the car, looks at her and says, gee, Mom, park a little close to the house, why don't you? So it was fun. It was really enjoyable. And, Sounds uh, like it was fun. It's it was once so cool. a lifetime experience for an awful lot of people. There are two. <laughs> you didn't hit them. You no, didn't I didn't hit, hit anybody. Boulder. You didn't hit the car. You didn't hit the house. You've done good. John, now, Melinda has not. She, she went blind when she was 22, so she had seen before, and she actually got a chance to drive a car again when she was blind on the freeway. On the freeway. Uh, what was it then? What? Just a busy road. Well, isn't that a freeway? That's a freeway. Melinda, pick up the phone. 
John, I want to hear your your story as well. Isn't that, it's okay. not a freeway. It was a busy road. Okay, fine. It was called Jacktone Road. Okay, up north. There was traffic, but there wasn't very much traffic. Just I did have oncoming cars. Oh, cool. That's okay. <laughs> is, that what, is that what they used to call euthanasia? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm feeling real good about this. <laughs> People who were in, the, we were in a rented van, and the friend, my friend who let me drive the van was on the, on the right passenger side, and um, he's telling me, okay, right, and a little more to your right. No, more to your right, and he grabs the wheel. Right, right, okay, okay, I'm right. Okay, good, good, you're doing good, good, good. And the guys in the back seat the whole time are going, Jim, this isn't funny. Let us out of the van. Or this isn't funny. Jim, Jim, we're going to crash. That's not very funny. Let us out. We want to get out of the van. Jim's like, ah, shut up. <laughs> Talk about having a captive audience. This is a great Dean Koontz novel. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Morning, a little bit more like Stephen King. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John, I need to hear your experience because you corrected me when I sent out a note earlier today. You came back and said, I drove too. Well, it's not nearly as exciting as what Larry and Melinda went through, but I was back in Chicago visiting my, my girlfriend at the time uh, right after a blizzard. So we, we figured that I could get a driving experience uh, because with the, all the blizzards, nobody was going to be out anyway. So we went to a, what we thought was going to be a deserted parking lot at a steakhouse, and she explained how to, how to, you know, what to do and so forth. They didn't say a lot of the steakhouse. Well, it's still there. No, but the parking uh, lot was deserted at a steakhouse. Well, but it, yeah, it was, in the, it was early. It was late morning. Oh. So nobody was there anyway. They were closed, and uh, there was no ice or snow on the ground. So uh, she explained how to how to maneuver around, and I did. Uh, we were moving around pretty good, and, uh, you know, she said, okay, stop, and so I did, and we, she said, okay, go, and I pushed the, the pedal and went a little further, and all of a sudden, she yelled, brake, brake, you know, and I thought, you know, if you take your foot off the pedal, it's got to stop, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> it didn't, but what I didn't realize is there was a guy with a Mercedes who had pulled into the parking lot, and I didn't know, you know, what, what was going on. So she said, brake, brake. And I put my foot on the brake and it finally stopped the car. The guy probably still to this day doesn't know that he was six inches away from a blind guy. So, I mean, that's, that's my only experience because and of you the... You didn't get to do the steering. She did the steering. Yeah, she was doing the steering and I was just oh, know, pushing the pedal. Yeah, so. the, steering is, the steering is a lot of fun, too. It's totally different being able to steer as well because you're doing two and or three things at the same time. Well, next time I solicit for a sighted girlfriend, then the driving experience will continue. There you go. We'll, we'll see what we can arrange for you. At the end of the show, we'll take calls from volunteers. <laughs> could, could we do that, Walden? We lost Walden. No, I'm, I, I am kicking back. We go actually. Okay, we're going to take calls from volunteers who will allow John to sit behind the wheel of the car. Yep. And go. <laughs> Walden, we'll, we'll, wake sure. you, we'll wake you up when we're done. Sounds good. Okay. Set the alarm for Tuesday and you'll be okay. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, we will get you, you folks off to work on, uh, on Monday. Okay. Now, you grew up in California. Is that correct? True. Yes. You did. This is, um, I guess it's an increasing experience, but for a long time, talking with a California native was an unusual experience. Talking to a California native was uh -huh. an unusual was, experience. Was yes, oh, yeah. an unusual experience. Yeah. It's um, it's difficult to find a Florida native, uh, but we're increasing with Florida natives now because the people who came and diluted the pool 
are now having kids who are, right. of course, been natives of Florida. So we're moving in the other direction as well. Are you a, are you a native of Florida? I am not. I didn't I'm think one so. of, I'm one of the interlopers. Yeah, are you, are you from back east? I am from back east. <laughs> Uh-huh. Well, it's sort of up east for me. They always say back east. I never knew quite what that meant. Well, because uh, it, if you had Easterners, meaning New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, right. show up in California, it would be back east. But why back east? Because they came from there to begin with. People here talk about back back north. Well, why don't they just say east? Well, because if you're, if you're back east, you're still there. Well, back east, meaning that's where I came from. So you're still there. Well, who's that first? <laughs> they, they, it takes between five and ten years. Now we're getting into sociology <laughs> here. But it takes between five and ten years for a person who is transplanted to a new area to begin to feel that it is home. So to many hmm. people who are talking back east or here, they will talk back north or up north. Uh, it's because they really haven't set their roots yet. See, it didn't take, yeah. me, that, it didn't yeah. take me that long, but I've only gone from Whittier to, Flo- to Fullerton. So well, yeah. you know, I never really understood that. And then when my then-girlfriend moved out here from Chicago, it took her probably two or three years until she felt like she was at home in uh-huh. California, even though she wanted to come out here just uh-huh. because of the weather. But it took her a long time to get used to, to California. And I, I guess that's the same for everybody who moves out to, from one state to another. Yeah, and it, she was actually ahead of the norm, so she she was a fast learner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is. Okay, talk to me about growing up in California and growing up as identical twins. In well, I know, we never really thought of ourselves, we just thought of ourselves as people moving from one day to another in, in regular life. Twins, we didn't even think about twins. I mean, we didn't really even consider the fact that twins would be something different from from somebody else. I mean, I guess we begin to think more about it later on. Not so much that grew up as regular kids. Not so much that you were different, but you were similar in in the opposite direction. Um, Identical twins have frequently have communication systems that they take for granted. Other people can't tap into them, but you have a communication system with each other. Yeah, one of the things we used to always do. Uh, we used to finish each other's sentences and, and just say the same thing at the same time, which is pretty common among twins. I used to do the same thing with the, the girlfriend who was a twin. And I don't know how, it just happened. You know, it, It's one of those weird things that's difficult to explain, but it happened. It drives Melinda nuts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when we're talking to each other and we finish sentences, and or we start a, a comment or a thread of conversation in the middle of the sentence and the other one knows how it probably would have begun, and we can just go and talk, and etc. Drives or nuts. And I don't know how you, I'm not trying to explain it physically, but it, it happens. I you're, understand. I guess you're so attuned to each other in terms of thought processes or whatever else, you know, that we just, I may just say something, and she'll say, what do you, where'd that come from? But, but John will just pick up on it and go, and I can't tell you why that is, but it's something that all twins seem to have the knack of being able to do. Mm-hmm. And on the uh, air, you know, you just, it, it, stuff happens, and it's, you know, it's going to happen. On this, on the show today for Yesterday USA. Uh, what the heck did I do? Oh, we started talking about, we were closing out the first hour. And uh, we, he started saying something, I would repeat it on top of 
what he was saying so that it sounded like two voices saying the same thing at the exact same time. Our, our sophisticated Bob and Ray routine. I did, yeah. Well, it wasn't Slow Talkers of America, but it was yeah. on the same principle. But it was semi-Slow Talkers of America. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it was designed just to mess with him a little bit, and it was fun. And, and we, didn't, did. and we, and we don't we tell each other we're going to do it. We just do it. And then we didn't refer to it, just, and people might have thought it was a mistake, but it wasn't. <laughs> and, you know, we were just having a good time with it. This, this is very cool. Now, to, I, I want to talk about that being translated into your love of old-time radio and how well you sync with each other in that. Tell me about the first old-time radio shows you heard and how old were you when you heard them? Probably, uh, probably six or seven. I'm, I'm thinking that probably the first shows we heard were in California. Charlie Michelson, who syndicated the Shadow during the 30s and 40s, still had a syndication company. In fact, he had it until he died, actually. But in the 60s, 61, 62, 63, he was syndicating shows on KHJ, which was, I don't think it was mutual then. I can't remember what it turned into. In any event, he was syndicating shows like The Shadow. That might have been the first program I remember hearing on a Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock. Um... And he did a lot of other shows that were BBC as well, but The Shadow, do you remember some of the others, John? Uh, Lone Ranger, I think he had on, Green Hornet. Yeah, there were a couple of uh, British shows, and these were shows that, that had gone off the air in the 50s, but he brought them back in the late 50s, early 60s, and, and uh, purchased the broadcast rights and made them available to commercial stations. And so yeah. that's how we found out about them. I think we probably heard a little bit of The Breakfast Club when it was still on. No, not The Breakfast Club. Was it The Breakfast Club? Yeah, yeah I guess it was. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Art Linklater's house party was still on. Yeah, I remember that in the uh, afternoon. I don't think I remember Suspense, or at least, I mean, I would have been seven years old, but I don't remember listening to it because it ended in 62. And Johnny Dollar, same thing. It was on, but I don't think I ever heard it. Mm-hmm. Same thing with well, Gunsmoke. When you heard the actual old-time radio shows that we would consider, like The Shadow and... Uh, the Lone Ranger, for example, as opposed to The Breakfast Club. Did you have an understanding that you were listening to a piece of radio history as opposed to current? No, it was no. current, so it was just a show. Yeah. It was just a show just, for you. It was just a show, and it was a, we knew it was a radio program, but we didn't know anything about why it was on and how, what significance it had. And we didn't know that it had already gone off and that this is a replay. We had no clue. We just knew it was a show, and we enjoyed it. When did you begin to have a comprehension that you were listening to history and that there was a lot more of it out there waiting for you to find? I think probably, probably not until the early 70s. Not till probably 69 or 70, when we had been hearing programs. We'd heard Arthur Godfrey, and we'd heard... Art Link Letter, etc., and and those were on, and those eventually went off. But then it, it was brought home to us, I think, in 1970, when on FM in Los Angeles we heard Joe Siegel, who later on, of course, went to went on to be a reporter uh, and a critic for um, ABC ABC in New York, <coughs> and he had a comedy show on in the morning on Saturday, and I think a uh, mystery type show on Sunday on KP. PC in Pasadena, a different station than the one we worked for. But this was a church. Before that was KMT, I think. No, I think I thought KPPC was first. 
They could, and, and then they all got fired, and then they moved to KMET. Oh, okay, that's what it was. Yeah, because I think because Harvey Tao was on KPPC as well, who was another local personality here in Southern California, and now is back in North, North Carolina. Carolina. I think. Yeah, yeah, but but they were playing shows for a while, uh, and they were playing shows like The Whistler and Lights Out and other shows, and clearly then we. If we hadn't known already, we found out because they would give dates on the shows, and we'd say, you know, we would hear them talk about a show from 1945 or 46. So we knew then that it had begun. It begun a lot earlier, and that's I think when we both talked about it, and we said, you know, n- not knowing that that there were hundreds of people across the country doing what we wanted to do, and that was to record the shows to save them. And we didn't know of, we didn't know anybody then, in term, from a collecting perspective. And there were collectors. They were primarily collectors who started in the '60s. But we began. We, then we began to call Harvey. Well, I don't think we may have talked to Joel on a few occasions, but we talked to Harvey, and he said he was a collector and he collected the shows. And we asked how, and he went through all that to, in terms of you know all his stuff was all done on open reel, and that's how we began to collect. And then we met Jerry Hendigas, who uh, did shows on KCRW in Santa Monica. Actually, he programmed the show for Joe Bluestein. Who, who actually was doing the actual show. But Jerry gave him the shows, in essence, provided the shows. And uh, and that was in 71, 72. And by then, we'd begun to actually collect. We found out that, that uh, radio reruns was in uh, in business, which was a, 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 seller, excuse me, a seller of old-time radio, and we bought shows. And before that, even, the local reading uh, library... Oh, the Braille Institute. people was the Braille Institute. Yeah. And they had radio shows that had been given to them by people, and they made them available on open reel tapes. They would send the open so, reel tapes to the mail. Yeah, it was all wow. done by mail. So we'd look through there and find the stuff that we thought we would be interested in and, and copy it. And, you know, from a sound perspective, a lot of it was garbage, but, you know, we didn't care then. Uh, we didn't really begin to differentiate, differentiate well, I know, I know the word. Let's hear you try it yeah. one more time. Yeah, I think I'll choose a different word. Uh, we didn't begin to, to choose different types of sound quality until That's we got true. more accustomed to that. Yeah. But it was it's new not- stuff. I mean, we'd never heard some of those shows before, so we collected pretty much everything. And then later on, quality became more important than quantity. And we, re- we replaced right. a lot of it. Right. Uh, yeah. In 1970, you were 15 years old? Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Yes. Uh, yeah. F- 15 is, by normal standards, kind of young to tap into old-time radio and appreciate the drama and the performances and the acting and the stories, which were very different from what we were listening to in the 60s and 70s. That's true. There, weren't, there were some. We knew of a few instances of a few people our age and or younger who were collecting, but you're right, the bulk of the people who were collecting were much older. And, uh, and probably had a probably had a history of listening to the shows, you know, as as in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most people who are collectors listened to the shows, right? When they were originally on. So that sets you apart one more time. Yes. From what we find out there, and we also have an enormous group of people who appreciate old time radio as um, a medium of entertainment. Sometimes. It's not like they do it every day. Um, they might come across a new show and listen to it uh, on an MP3 on a Wednesday and then not do it again until Friday. Mm-hmm. But um, for you two and for others 
in the industry, I'll, I'll say it that way, this is really far more than an occasional entertainment. It's far more than a hobby. Talk about that. It, it was. Uh, and even then, we didn't make it a part of our life, a continual part of our life. We, we didn't do that even when we were doing the show because we, we both refused to. We knew that there were other things going on in our lives, and we did not want it to be all-consuming. And certainly it was important to us, especially once we began to get involved with SpurredVac and once we had the radio shows and once we began to meet and interview people. Yeah, that was important, and it was a necessary thing that we would do, but it wasn't the only thing that we did in our lives because we didn't want to tie ourselves down just to collecting of the shows, and we wanted to be involved with other people and other things. And you did. Yes, we did. Yeah. <laughs> it was really a hobby. It, it, I'm looking from the outside in. I mean, obviously, you know what's inside your head and what's inside your studios. And I'm looking from the outside in and associating you with old-time radio, period. That's how I know your names. I, that's how I know you. That's how I know your voices. I can't tell them apart, but I know your voices. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning. You're on different phones tonight. I'm picking up, okay, the difference now. Um, Turn your webcam on, Larry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> please. <laughs> Give me any hints along the way here. Um, I'm better looking, uh, Patricia. Uh, really? Uh-huh. Is, is, is that true? Now, say that again. I'm, I'm, I'm much better looking. You're meant, that's John. Yes. Okay. He also yeah. has more insecurities than I do. I don't have the need <laughs> to actually tell you. That's Larry. Because <laughs> you're, you're married and you're stuck with it. I'm, I'm, I'm going back and forth here. This is okay. I'm, I'm, I'm improving. A lot. Walden is fast asleep. He's just snoring. He falls backwards periodically. When we're in the chat room and Walden disappears, sometimes it's because he fell backwards and fell asleep. Yep, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> He's really a hoot. He's a good buddy. Um, tell me about developing or creating Same Time, Same Station, the radio show. Well, we didn't. Um, the The original Same Time, Same Station was an interview show that KRL, that was produced by Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters, really, uh, and, John and, and aired and John John Price, and then it was aired on KRLA, and they. It was it was primarily an interview show where they would interview people from from their ranks of Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters and Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters is and was a group of people who were active in radio. They were performers. They were mm -hmm. directors, producers, sound effects men, writers, etc. And they got together. They still do five or six times a year, and they do luncheons and they honor people from within their ranks. And uh, they talked to KRLA about putting a show together to chronicle radio's first 50 years. And so they did that from 1971 until about 1974. And it was heard on KRLA Pasadena. And uh, many of those shows exist. Not all of them. Actually, that's not true. Many of them are in circulation. They all seem to exist, but I don't think they're all in circulation yet. Um, a friend of ours who used to be a, a sound editor did, for movie editing, uh, who was also a big radio fan, uh, decided to talk to people at KPCC in Pasadena back in 1979. Pasadena City College. Yeah, he, he said, I want to do a show, a radio show, because Bob Lyons had been doing one since 1975, and later Barbara Watkins joined him over at KCSN, and, and, and our friend Woody Schultz said, I'd like to do something like that. And so 
they said, what do you want to call it? And he said, same time, same station. Same time, same station was sort of a buzzword that had been used in radio. Mm-hmm. Join us again next week, same time, same station. Same station. And he, right. and he took, they took that, that buzzword, catchphrase, and he said, I want to call it same time, same station. And so he auditioned, and then he got busy uh, with movies, etc. and he asked us to come on and help him out from, from time to time, and we did. And then when they decided that they were going to move to Arizona in uh, 1980, uh, he said, would you guys like the show? And we said, absolutely. So we didn't even audition for it. He just gave it to us. And so October 6, 1980 was the first time that we actually did the show uh, on our own. And it was, um, it, was kind, it was pretty similar to what he had done, except that we decided, and by the way, Woody is in his 80s now, and he's still living in Arizona 20-some years later, 30 years, years later. Uh, but we decided that what we wanted to do is we did want to interview people. That was true. But we wanted to play two hours of radio shows, meaning if we could, we wanted to put four shows in there, four 30-minute shows. Mm-hmm. And generally, most people will do three, and then the fourth one will be a 15-minute show. To, you know, but we didn't have any commercials to deal with. But other people wanted to talk a little more. And we decided we think we can probably do more uh, if we try and get four 30-minute shows in, talk a little less. Because we knew that people listen to the radio shows to hear the shows, not to hear the hosts. Uh, maybe we can do something. We could have done something to to make it more interesting, perhaps, or tell a little bit about a show. But primarily, that's we are not the focal point of show. The show is the focal point, and we realized that early on, and and always seemed tried to make it work that way, even when we were interviewing people. But so that's kind of how it began, and it continued on until. Um, 2000 on KPCC, and then uh, things changed over at KCSN, and the management said, we're going to drop the show, uh, and, and do you want to do it? And uh, and we said, well, not really, because we have friends who are doing the show, and they said, well, no, we're changing. And um, never did find out what happened with that, but in any event, they said, if you don't do it, then we'll drop it. So we did, and we, that lasted for about a year. Or no, a year I think, and then I got married. We had to put our stuff in storage, and I think Jerry Hendigas took it for a little while, and eventually they did drop it, and uh, that was I don't know maybe a year or two later after that, which was too bad because that show had been on for a long, long time. Where did the interviews come in? Along the way here, um, Walden tells me that you have an aggregate of about 400 interviews with professionals and people associated with old-time radio and performances. Where did they come in? How did you do them? How did you connect? How did this happen? Well, part of it was we had been going for years to some of the Pacific County Broadcasters' luncheons and to some of their nostalgia nights. So we met people there. Mm-hmm. Um we began to be active in Spurdvac in 1974, and we met people through Spurdvac, and we were both involved in the running of the organization too. Uh, eventually, I began. I, I chaired the meetings and I chaired the conventions, so we had access to a lot of people and, and became friendly with many of them. And if we were looking for somebody to interview, all we had to do was call somebody. It uh, got to that okay. point. It was very easy. I think I probably called agents for the first three or four months and decided this is garbage this is ridiculous because you don't get anywhere mm-hmm. well I'll have them call you back in another week and you know who knows did that happen sometimes 
but not very often. And usually word of mouth kind of contacts really was the yeah. way to go. And so we would interview people in the early 80s. I think the first interview we may have done was in 1982, maybe, with Curly Bradley. Maybe. I can't remember. I have to go back and look. It's funny, going through all this stuff now that it's out of storage, I'll go through and we'll look at the notebooks, and, and <laughs> so many times I'll say, I don't remember doing that. <laughs> you know, that's, it's really weird. It's an eye-opener as well, because that's 1980, 85. That's 20 years ago. Yeah. It didn't seem that long ago when we were doing it back then, but now, since time has gone and we were doing other things for the last 10 years, that's a long, long time ago. And unfortunately, a lot of those people are now gone, so I'm, we're happy that we got the interviews we got. And, and you've held on to them. You haven't lost any or given any away or no. had any. No, we, got them. we have them all, and, and I haven't talked about this with too many people, but one of the things I want to do is the people back east have done a pretty good job of not only saving the interviews that they've done, but they're up on websites. Uh, WTIC, all those interviews that those people did, what a great show that is. All of them are up on the website, the Golden Age of Radio. And so I, don't, I, I haven't even talked to people yet to figure out how we can do this, but I was talking to John a couple of nights ago, and I said, what if we were to get together, we'll call Bob and Barbara, or we'll call Walden, or wh whomever, Chuck Shaden, mm -hmm. and we'll find somebody who has some space on a website, and we'll, we'll provide radio interviews of people we've interviewed to the website for free and let people download them. Because if, if you go on the Internet and look, uh, you see a ton of radio shows. Certainly not all of them. There's a ton more to put up there. But there's very few interviews. And, and that needs to change so that people 10 years from now or 20 years from now or researchers uh, can get an idea of what it was like doing radio. Mm -hmm. and, and the Internet's the way to go now. Uh, certainly you can get them from radio clubs like Spurdvac and, and Reps, etc. But wouldn't it be neat to have a central website or something where we can put up shows that Chuck Shaden did? And I, I'm throwing out names here. We haven't talked to anybody yet. This is just a, an idea that germinated a couple days ago. Or shows that we did or Bob Blinds and Barbara Watkins did so that you know, if people want to do some research, they can go back and listen to Les Tremaine uh, or Owen Soleil and Barbara Luddy or or Hyman Brown, or Jackson Beck, or whomever. And, and you know, memories, memories are faulty, certainly, and there might be some mistakes, but at least you get, you'd get kind of an idea as to what it was like during radio, because there were an awful lot of good interviews that are sitting, you know, in storage, or, or sitting in people's homes, and, and the people who did them get a chance to hear them, but nobody else does. I can understand what you're saying. I've been out to, I have a handful of sites, I guess everybody does, where you can kind of sneak in and say, oh, good, you've got this show. I've never seen this one or heard this one before. But the numbers of interviews I have found are paltry mm -hmm. by comparison to the numbers of shows that are available. Right. And it's such a disappointment for me. They're wonderful when I find them. And I'm assuming that there are other people out there who feel the same as I do. Well, I hope so. But I'm, I, I often wonder because I do know that, and I don't know if it's still the same, but my guess is that it probably is. When we would we would do quantitative measurement, which is a fancy way of saying we'd look to see which shows were the most popular in the Spiritback Library. The interviews traditionally weren't, nor were the.
So I'm, I'm wondering, if we were to do all this work to put all this stuff up there, would it matter? Would people really care? And I'm not sure that I really know the answer to that question. Well, it begets another question. Have they ever had an opportunity to know what an interview contains if they've never had an opportunity to listen to them? Wait a minute. John, did you go away? I don't know. He's, my, he he my, must have because I, my phone just got beeped. Uh, yeah, my cell phone. I heard a, I heard a little beep beep. And yeah, and that shouldn't like, happen because I tied John in. Okay, that was my cell phone. Maybe he was trying to call my cell phone. I don't know. Can you guys hang on and I'll go... Yeah, uh, you go right here, Larry. Go, go find him. I'll be right back. That's Larry Gassman. I'm Wong Hugh. That's Patricia from Florida. Patricia and from Florida is over here. Over there. Wait, wave your hands to the people. Oh, here I am. Here she is. Um, and we're waiting for John. And um, we are spending the evening with the Gasman. The Gasman twins who've been the mainstay of old-time radio, who uh, probably were one of Bill Bradley's very first uh, full-time disc jockeys on the station back in 1986. Had a uh, good 16-year run. Um, hosting shows. They were the go-to guy for Bill Bragg for many, many interviews. Traditionally, Bill was the one that had them book the guests. They would co-host with Bill or record it and turn it down. They were the go-to guys. And we got stories galore with the Gasmans. And you can call them, too, at 714 545 2071 is our number, 714-545-2071. One to back with us. Back. I, I heard a click. I thought you were. Yeah, the call dropped. But, John, uh, how long have you been gone, John? About five minutes. I tried to call Walden, but I got a machine. So uh, I, I'm I heard the sure. beat. I'm, yeah, I heard yeah, it. If, yeah, you probably called my cell phone. That's when I said, huh, I'm walking over there to the other side of the room. I'm not supposed to tell you that Larry hung up on you, but... No, you're not. <laughs> no, I, I, won't, I won't say that out loud, though. Thank you, Patricia. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't hear... What did, what did you say, Patricia? I didn't hear you. I, I'm very... It's Seriously? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that Walton probably failed to tell you is that I am the most gullible person you will ever have an opportunity to talk with. We're finding that out, out and we're gullible. loving it. Pardon? We're finding that out and we're loving it. <laughs> Um, and it's, I mean, I, I don't do this dumb routine of, it's, it's just really part of a way. I trust everybody. Whatever you say is good unless I, it's proven otherwise. So um, do keep that in mind when you start telling me stories. Okay. Uh, so we wait. were talking about interviewing and, and trying to put something together where people could hear in these interviews and would they really listen to them? And I think that's probably where John, we found out John wasn't on the phone. It, that's when we found out John, poor John yeah. wasn't on the phone. I, and my I question I, was... I think I, I dropped out when you said hi. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Not> bad, huh? <laughs> my question was, how can people be interested in interviews if they don't know that interviews are interesting? How would you cultivate an interest in listening? Well, it, it, it goes back to the show that the individual was a part of. I mean, nobody, nobody, for example, most people before they knew about Gunsmoke wouldn't know necessarily who Parley Bear was or Howard McNair, but they, they would remember that they were a part of Gunsmoke. And so that in, in itself would, would, uh, would begin an interest. And then when they found out that, oh, Parley Bear was Chester. Oh, well, that, I remember Chester. And I, you know, so uh -huh. then, then that begins 
that begins to, to heighten the interest, or gun smoke in and of itself would, would be a, a thing that, that people would care about. Or most people wouldn't really know who Hyman Brown was, but they certainly right. would remember that Hyman Brown, his name is associated with and he gets credit for uh, uh, Inner Sanctum Mysteries, and they'll remember Inner Sanctum. So when, he's, when you say Hyman Brown did, you know, directed and etc., oh, wow, okay, I know who that is. So then, then the interest is there. So you'd have to, you'd have to align the, inter- the, the name of the person you're interviewing with the show to make sure that it's going to be something that people would like to listen to. I have a hypothesis. Um, what I've noticed, the generation, my generation younger, who love old-time radio, a lot of us grew up on talk radio. And I think because you're that group, I've talked to a bunch of them over the years, I think those are probably the more apt to ones looking for the interviews because they're used to talk radio format. Maybe with the people who were the ones before us, they were looking for the shows because they remember the shows. I think you're probably right. Mm-hmm. Because this, even though the shows are important, mm-hmm. they're they're probably not the only reason somebody younger would listen. Somebody in their 50s and 60s who heard the shows back many years ago, that's why they're listening, and so they might want to cultivate more towards the shows rather than the interviews. So I think you might have a point. Mm -hmm. Well, and their attention spans are probably at least 30 minutes longer than a talk radio listener who who is used to the two- to three-minute attention span in a commercial. Hmm. That's interesting. But the the group you're talking about, um, 60s, even 70s, uh, who were talk show aficionados in the era of talk show, is accustomed to listening for a full half hour or a full hour, and in Gene Shepard's case, forever, um, just listening to him talk. So that is your perfect audience for the interview tapes, but cultivating a new generation of listeners in that area is such a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, it is. How are we going to do this? Well, well you, you, you got to know what you're talking about going into the interview, and you've well, got to ask that, good that questions leaves me out. to get to the storyline. So. No, it yeah. doesn't. No, you're, uh, you could have been an engineer because you're meticulously prepared. Thank you. Folks, you should have seen the questions. <laughs> if I had printed those things out in Braille, I'd have gotten a hernia lifting them. Oh, dear me. I've got two pages and all double-spaced and everything. Well, it's a slight exaggeration, but it, it does make my point. I did get a hernia. i got to tell you, I have to see a doctor tomorrow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not on a Sunday, John. Well, oh, you're right. Okay, I'll, I'll have to suffer through, and it'll, I'll have to take a day off on wor- uh, work on Monday. Yeah. But, uh, Oh, dear. Well, these are just praying teasers for me to make <laughs> sure that I cover areas that I think people would like to hear about, and I certainly would love to hear about. Tell me how you first connected with Yesterday USA. In 1986, I went to the very first um, Friends of Old Time Radio Convention. You're being Larry. Yeah. Yeah. Did I even go that year? Yeah. Well, I think I was sent by the board because we we had an issue, and and they said, you need to go back there and talk to some people, and and I can't even remember exactly what it was all about now. But in any event... Uh, uh, it doesn't matter, but I went back there. Oh, no, do you want to hear the the, the dirt? It doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> yeah, you really do want to hear Yeah, I want to talk to You're... John. Hold on. <laughs> I can't remember, because I don't remember what it was about. Well, no, there, there was a there was a thing going on, because uh, Spurback had gotten, Spurback being the old-time radio organization on the West Coast, 
had gotten a lot of good material, and it, and some of the material had been given to us with the restriction that it not be given to those who would sell the material. Oh, I remember now. Okay, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. And we said, okay, under those restrictions, you know, we'll we'll do it because we want to make sure that it's preserved. Well, a lot of the the dealers on the East Coast were unhappy about that, figuring that uh, you know it was they they were were considering it being uh, copyrights had been had been uh, extinguished and therefore it should be made available to everyone. Well, I, I think their I think their take on it was that the people who gave it to us had the rights to maybe the discs, the physical discs, but not necessarily the actual shows. Okay. Right. So it wasn't theirs to to make restrictions on. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the dealers probably said. So there had been, been, been discussions going back and forth and a disagreement, and, and Spurdback figured, okay, let's send back the president, and let's get everybody in the same room and talk it over. And that's that's the major reason why Larry went back to the convention. But it was a great convention, and, and that <clears throat> that eventually led to others. Yeah, and, okay, so I, I went back there, and we talked about a lot of stuff, and we, we, we came to a uh, an, an agreement of sorts, and... And it worked out fine, actually. But when I was there, uh, there were people who I found out were actually sitting in some of the 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 uh, they weren't interview rooms, but that's what they turned out to be. They're little little conference rooms, and they would bring their little recorders with them, and they would flag people down in the lobby, and they'd say, "Could we talk at such and such a time? Could I interview you for?" And in this case, uh, this is 1986, and the, uh, one of the guys. Was with was with the Yesterday USA, and his name was Bill Brazy. Actually, I think it was pronounced Brazy, from Chicago. I don't know anything about him. I never met him after that, and I heard um, that he had passed away a couple years after that. I don't know anything about him. It was spelled. His last name was spelled B R A S I E, and he was a DJ. And we did interviews. I just found them coming out of storage here not long ago. People like we did interviews jointly with uh, with Peg Lynch and Jackson Beck and Alice Reinhardt and um, others. So there's a few more of this. Uh, each of them were maybe 30 minutes in length. And uh, and he took them back and did shows with them. And for a while, I think we stayed in touch. And I think we put little 10 to 15 minute little things together talking about, I think maybe we talked about spurred back a little bit. It was sort of a spurred back um, cameo where we talked about people that were involved with spurred back, radio people we'd interviewed, etc. Mm-hmm. So that was the first connection with Yesterday USA. Then eventually, in 1988, I think I called or emailed. No, I didn't email because I didn't have a computer. Must have written Bill Bragg and said we'd like to be involved with the station. And um, he hemmed and hawed and tried to get, say no. That's not really true. Um, yeah, it is. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it, yeah. When I called him, he said, John, I've been waiting for you to call me, but... Uh, Does Larry yeah, have to be there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We said, can we can we just do it with just John? <laughs> and I said, sure. <laughs> now, remember, right. Patricia is gullible. I'm You're right. gullible. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for remembering that. Uh, I, I, it may come up again later on. Who knows? Aww. Actually... Actually, Walden said, don't do a show with John and Larry. <laughs> As I remember, right? That's right. I think that's yeah. true, yeah. yeah. This is good. Okay, d- you, you can blame each other. Just I don't even uh, recall whether we actually auditioned. Um, I, we, 
Maybe we sent him a tape. I may have, yeah. But in any event, uh, the first several shows, I think, were 60 minutes, and eventually it evolved into a 90-minute show. And I don't even, we didn't even use Same Time, Same Station as a name back then. We called it This Is Radio. And, and I don't know why we did that. It would have been probably easier for us if we had just used Same Time, Same Station. And eventually, well, we, eventually did, we did. I bet we probably just used the Same Time, Same Station shows that we were doing. We did. For KPCC and just did new intros for Yesterday USA. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that's what we probably did. But we okay. did that for, boy, uh, 12 years? No, more than that. Almost 14, I guess. And eventually, in about 1993, he, Bill called us and said, would you guys like to start an interview thing, uh, maybe whatever, whenever we can do them? It was as early as 91, because I've... You're right. I've got some of the digital files here now. Okay, 91. And we did that for four or five years, and we stopped for whatever reason, and then... And that, that means literally we, we, would, we would do the same things that we were doing for Spurdback, where we would contact guests and ask them if they would appear on the show on Sunday nights. And then we would call them during USA, uh, yesterday USA, and we would be on the air with Bill and uh, and the guests, and we talk sometimes for two, two or hours, three or, you know, several days sometimes. Um, <laughs> but but some of the cool thing about that was, yeah, in many instances we would use and, and record again for yesterday USA a lot of our friends from the West Coast. But this enabled us also to talk to people on the East Coast, and. Uh, we didn't have that opportunity as much. Now, we have been going and we went to Friends of Old Time Radio from, I think, 1986 to 1996, something like that. So for 10 years, we did, every year, we made it a point to interview people. And we would call them ahead of time and say, can we talk when we can when we get to New Jersey? And they would say yes. And, uh, and we built up several interviews that way. And we recorded a lot of the convention because we were able to patch directly into the sound system. So... We got great recordings, much better than what was released to the general public because they were just using it off of a microphone, a video uh, with a video camera with a mic with a microphone yeah. built into the into the cam quarter. Yeah, so, so we got a lot of nice sound. Mm -hmm. This is really remarkable. Now I'm I've got the word memorable in a couple of places, and I did send the list of proposed questions. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's our, our vacation together by the time we get to the end of them. Yeah. But I've got the word memorable in there a couple of times, and, and it's a word I like to use because there are some experiences and people who come to mind more quickly than others. So for the time when, from 1991, when you were doing interviews with Bill on Yesterday USA, which guests stand out as memorable or, and it could be for any reason. I mean, I, I, I said to one of you, you could, setting the studio on fire is a memorable experience as well. But who do you remember best? In general, with Bill or with anybody? With, uh, the guests you, the three of you were interviewing with Yesterday USA. The two well, of you would get on the air with Bill. Bear, of course. Partly with, with Gunsmoke, I remember, because he was such a good storyteller, and he had so many vivid memories. All you had to do was mention a name, and he'd go on for a couple hours. So he was really good and made it made a, a very interesting interview and, a, and an easy interview. Did he tell a story that you remember today? I remember. I, I can't remember the name of the, the actual actor that was involved, but I remember him telling a story about... A, an actor who was reading a script 
and they had to make some changes in the script. And, and at that time, during those days in the 40s, it was um, mimi, uh, mimeographed or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you made copies of that script and put it under light, everything disappeared. So when he went to read it, there was nothing there. It was a special color. It was a different... I yeah. Oh, the purple. Yeah. There was a purple color that the machines used to put out. It's a sided thing, mm-hmm. John. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had no clue. I didn't know what color it was. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be right. Some... There was something about ink in those pieces of equipment. My brother is an old-time printer and or worked in old-time print shops. And I would guess that different lighting would do different things to uh, to different colored inks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But wow. they didn't know that, and they would hold the scripts up, and there was nothing there. Oh, my gosh. So okay. they worked their way around it. Uh, probably what they probably did is they made a couple of extra copies and people shared until more copies could be made. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Boy, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. It's your line, okay? Yeah. Especially if you don't realize that <laughs> until this the is, show starts. Yeah, this is fine. Who, yeah. who's, whose line is on this piece of blank paper? Exactly. <laughs> okay, Parley Bear, give me another name, someone who jumps out as a, a really wonderful experience. Um. We okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna um, change it a little bit here because there were a lot of good people that we did with with Bill Bragg. But one of the most entertaining and fun experiences we had ever was the same time same station show that we did at the station, and we had McDonald Carey, Herb Ellis, and Cleve Herman. Uh, the primary focus of the show was to talk a lot about Jason and the Golden Fleece because McDonald Carey was the star, Herb Ellis wrote some of them, but also acted in them. Cleve Herman wrote m- many of them. Now, Cleve Herman, of course, was a longtime newspaper man. Uh, later on, did sports for KFWB. He was a writer. But back in the 50s, he wrote radio shows. And they hadn't seen each other in, in several years. And Herb Ellis helped us put it together. And so we said, be there a little before 5, because that's when the show starts. So they all got there, like quarter to 5. And they were in the the outer lobby of the radio station. And by the time we got there, they had already seen each other, talked to each other. And, and this long conversation about, hey, what have you been doing? How have you been doing? Who you know, who you're married to, whatever. I don't think they probably asked that. But in any event, it got to the point where it was like two minutes to five, and they're still talking. And finally we about had the radio stuff. Uh, just about stuff, radio stuff, whatever. And finally we said, guys, we need to finish this later, but we need to move into the studio. So they all moved into the studio. They're still talking. <laughs> And so we started the show, and it was a long theme because we found pieces of Days of Our Lives, which we aired, uh, you know, the the the, the, the theme song. Mm-hmm. The excerpt. A little excerpt. We aired that first, then we aired the theme. And McDonald Carey, I think, had just come out with a book or was about to come out with a book. Um, and when we started talking, they stopped. But just as soon as we threw it back to them, the conversation pretty much just picked up or had stopped earlier. And that's the way it was for the whole show. And we were going to call. In well, fact, we did we call did. Bill Conrad. We tried to call. We talked about Bill Conrad because he was a part of the show. And, right. And they were talking about how much fun he was to be around. And I said, well, let's just see if he's, a, if he's home. Because cause we, brought, we brought the note, the, uh, the card files with all of our names and addresses of radio people in case you know, they should mention to some, someone that 
we might have in the file. And we hadn't, we hadn't talked about initially calling him, but they mentioned Bill Conrad, and, and so we said, yeah, let's see if he's around. He was in Hawaii. He was gone. He was in Hawaii. Yeah. But, but we know, did call Parley Bears, called, called Parley later on. He remembered working on the show, etc. And he was fun. He was fun, and he made everybody laugh. And there were a few other people who we called as well. And that was a just a really cool two hours because it went by like crazy. And they just never stopped talking. It was so easy to do. We had Stan Freeberg on two or three times. Yeah. Uh, when he released uh, United States of America, Volume 2. And his book. Uh, and, of course, his book. So those were two occasions. And, you know, I can't remember now if it was the, the interview with, with McDonald Carrier or the, or the Freeberg interview, but a couple of colleagues that we worked with at the station told us later that they were listening to the show and driving into their driveway, and rather than miss what was coming up next, they sat around for a half hour just to listen to the show because it was so exciting. Well, one of them was Marty Halpern. Yeah, who is the archive broadcaster. Yeah. 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 One of the cool things that happened with, with Stan Freeberg was that Freeberg was still, even then, doing commercials, and this is like 1991. No, maybe it was 96. I've forgotten which. In any event, he brought a cassette in and gave it to us, and I just came across it. And he did a commercial uh, for the Seeing Eye, uh, which is a organization that um, trains blind people and guide dogs and puts them together. Mm-hmm. It's a guide dog school. And he did a he did a, um, a sp- several spots for the Seeing Eye. And in one of the commercials, um, two of the the names in the commercials he used were John and Larry. And uh, which without that was pretty cool. And then he so he gave us that little cassette and we played it so uh, did, did you know ahead of time or no. did you know at the time he was, I, I he had was no we had it? no idea he just brought it with him how cool and played it yeah is that not yeah. cool I love this I think we played that a few months ago on one of the shows that we did uh, just because I found it and I thought oh let's let's share this with people so uh, you know Stan Freeberg was always fun and and we've always gotten along well and uh and he's, you know, he's so quick and so much fun in the studio. You just never know what's going to come out of his mouth. And we haven't talked to him now since we've been back. I called him, but I never heard back. Um, so that's something else to do, to call him. Yeah, I'd love to get him back on the show again to see how he's doing. I love it. When you interview someone, do you do what I did to you that you're talking about? Do you, do you walk in with a set of questions, no. uh, areas that you want to cover, or or do you... Go with the flow. We sort of take the Larry King approach. Larry King never reads a book. He feels that, and not that I think I'm as good as Larry King, but he feels that the spontaneous approach is the best. Now, also, Larry King is busy. So my guess is it probably works well for him. And in most cases, he knows a little bit about the guests because he, he, they're pretty famous guests. So he knows a little bit about them, but he likes to, he gets a brief scenario of why they're there. And he likes to just ask questions off the cuff. And now, granted, when we're doing a radio interview, we pretty much know about the guest because we know most of the people who worked in radio. Mm-hmm. So for us, it was very easy to kind of think about some of the things we wanted to talk about. But nothing ever got put down on paper as far as, rarely. Uh, we would just Other than the shows. Other than the shows, we would list the credits. And then we would, we would come up with a couple of questions that we thought we might ask. But a lot of it depended on the guest because... The questions we would always ask were based on the answers and what they had, what they talked about. Mm-hmm. So it really, is, listening is the key. 
but uh, that you know, and I enjoyed working like that. Our, our shows are never scripted either. Uh, we have an idea as to what we're going to play, but we never know what we're going to say until we say it. Now we and work off each other pretty well, so yeah. we just go. I figured that out all by myself. Good for you. <laughs> You're not as gullible, gullible as you think you are. I'm not as. <laughs> At least not I am so the push kid. <laughs> should we should we tell you a Larry King story? I want to hear a Larry King story. Yes. The, the producer of the Larry King show for the many years that was on on Mutual Radio was Pat Piper. And I don't remember now how we got in touch with Pat Piper, but there were instances where they would have interviews. And I, I guess, I don't remember now how we got in touch with him. I guess we... I think we he called, answered the phone, John. I think he, he called us or did we call him? No, 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 no. I think he answered the phone a lot of the times when we would call Larry King. Yeah, but I, I guess there was a guest on and we had a question of some right. kind. yeah. Or offered if, if they if they needed shows, we would send them a show. Well, I think also we put him on the mailing list too. Yeah, and from Spurdback, so he knew about Spurdback. So, yeah. so we became a clearinghouse in the event that he needed information about a guest, or needed excerpts for when Larry was going to interview somebody, usually on the West Coast when he was here in L.A. Uh huh. Because at the time he was based in Washington, and I think he lived in Washington. He did. Later he moved out here, and and is still out here to this day. So we would send material, and then Pat would call and say, why don't you guys come down? So we and another friend of ours who was connected with Spurdback very heavily at the time, Dan Hafley, who was still doing a show, I think, for USA, yeah. would go down to Culver City. We would provide excerpts in many cases and be available. So the first time we were there, the guest, I was, it was... Was Lorene Tuttle? It was, supposed, it was supposed to be Lorene Tuttle. Right. And and she went to the hospital. Yeah. Right. That's and the, I, uh, West Tremaine, Polly Bear, and Dodge Butt were pink shit yeah. for Lorene. They substituted right. for Lorene because Lorene went to the hospital and I think passed away very shortly thereafter. Right. So we were there with, with uh, Dodge and Parley and Les, and they were on the show and a commercial came up. And and, uh, and I remember I remember because Dodge Butler was very short and Dodge Butler had some tr leg trouble, and we had to climb stairs. And I distinctly remember him holding my arm, and I'm literally dragging him up the stairs because he couldn't. He had something wrong with his, one of his legs. I've forgotten what he said. It was what was the issue. But I remember, Jack, older, huh? He was a little older. He was a little older. Time. Yeah, but I remember pulling him up the stairs, and I apologized. Wow. And he said, No, 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 don't worry about it. We're getting we're getting there faster. I'm not a. I don't have an issue with it. So there was no there was no photo opportunity for a blind guy pulling an older guy up a stairs. No, right? no, okay, no. So we were there, and, and the first we did about twenty minutes, or not we, we were just sitting there watching. But Larry did twenty minutes with with Les and and uh, Parley and Dawes, and the commercial came up, and somebody came in and did a. They had to do a measuring for Larry because he was doing something on CNN that next day, so they were measuring him for a suit. He hadn't <laughs> had time to eat. So he reached down and grabbed a cold piece of pizza and popped it into his mouth. And this was all within about a two-minute uh, time span during the commercial. And this, of course, is before his heart attack and may have contributed to it. We, <laughs> we still don't know. <laughs> but uh, that was quick, on the run, quick eating and reacting during a commercial. Eventually, uh, that led to a heart attack. Yeah, I'm sure it did. Yeah. But that was, that was the first time we met Larry. I think maybe the only time. I don't remember now. We did. We contributed.
contributed guests for other shows. I'm not sure that we ever were down there. Well, I, I remember the time, because and we have the show too in '88, I think it was, and um, Douglas Edwards was going to be inducted into the National Association of Broadcasters. And, and Larry, Douglas, of course, was a world-renowned CBS newsman, of course. Yeah. So we're here, and 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 uh, it's actually it was supposed it was in Anaheim. That's where the convention was. So we called Pat Piper because Douglas Edwards was on Larry King's show, and we said we want to interview him. Can we do that? And he said, Well, let me uh, talk to him. And and Doug, uh, Douglas Edwards said, Yes, I'd love to have you come on and interview me. Um, the luncheon is at noon. It's probably going to take maybe an hour. And I've got about another hour before I have to, I don't know if he had to fly out or what he had to do. I think so, he had to fly out, yeah. So we, we, I can't remember what the hotel was now, but they told us which hotel it was. And so John and I and Chris Limbessis, who was a longtime radio collector, uh, drove, well, Chris did. This was not one of our driving experiences. <laughs> uh, Chris drove us to Anaheim. We were living in Whittier at the time. And we had a, a Technics. Was it a 1700? It was an open reel recorder, yeah. I think it was uh, a big open reel recorder. I bet it weighed 40, 50 pounds. And I'll stick, I remember to this day, one of us picking that thing up and walking across the parking lot in the hotel lobby, up the stairs to the tower where Douglas Edwards' hotel room was. Wow. And it was a suite. And whoever it was, I know, was feeling the effects of carrying this stupid recorder. We plugged it in and did about 45 minutes with us with him. And he was one of those people that you could just squawk up and say hello to, and it you felt as if you had known him all your life. He was very nice, very nice. And great it was interview. Great we, interview. What we did he tell you that time. surprised you? What's that? What did he tell you that surprised you during the interview? Uh, that he hated blind people. <laughs> and gullible people, too. Yeah, gullible people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, he was just, he was just very, he answered every question. I don't know that he says that anything that surprised us. I think maybe what surprised me was that he was so down to earth and and so amenable to answering questions. And and it's funny, so many times and it happened time and time again, when we would come again when we would interview somebody who didn't know us because it's different when the people know you mm-hmm. going in. But the like Howard Duff didn't know me and it took about ten minutes for him to warm up to me to realize, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. Um, Douglas Edwards, n- we never had that issue. But usually the people who, you do- who don't know you, it takes a little while before they say, okay, he knows what he's talking about, he knows his stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, and then they warm up, you know, because most times when they inter- get interviewed by people, it's like, oh, God, I got another interview. What are they going to ask me now, and what kind yeah. of stupid questions? What was the name and of and your just, show? Yeah. <clears throat> yep, and I'll just use my stock answers. Yeah, we and it's, every once in a while we would get stock answers from somebody that they always would tell people, and then when we would hear that, both of us, we would start thinking of other questions that wouldn't lead to stock answers. Uh-huh. Because we, we would want to draw the guest out with questions that he didn't get asked all the time. But but Douglas Edwards, that's what surprised me about him was that he was he made you feel so much at home the first time he ever opened his mouth to talk to you. It's like he'd known you for thirty years. That's really quite remarkable. Yeah. How did he uh, compare? That that's not fair. Not not compare. You've also talked with Robert Trout. Is that correct? Yes. Robert Trout, also a newscaster, really prominent in the. Um, 
FDR administration. Mm-hmm. How was he in the approachable category? Well, he was very approachable. I don't know if we ever met him. I don't think so. We, we, how did we get in touch with him? I think he was on the was he on the Spurdvac uh, newsletter list or something? Somehow sure we got, was, but we got in but, contact with him and we called him in Spain. <laughs> and I don't remember what the hell that phone bill was. No, we must have called him through a CBS number that connected. No, I don't think we did. I think we called him in Spain because I do remember it was it was a phone bill. It wasn't extend. I mean, it was we didn't have to mortgage the house, but it was uh, it was a little no, more. I, I think we bankrupted Spurdback for a month or two. Did we call on Spurdback? I don't think we did. I I, I I don't remember now, but we did talk to him in Spain. I remember that. I don't think we called on Spurdback. I think we called him on our own home phone. But I I I think that there was a New York phone number associated with getting in touch with him in Spain. Maybe. I don't remember. I don't I don't either. But in any event, whether it was or, or not, um, he was very approachable, and, and both of the gentlemen were really very well-spoken, quite literate. Um, I hope so. I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in their particular job. Exactly. Oh, but, in but, I mean, environment, yeah. not necessarily. Yeah, no, but, but they were. They were incredible. And he was very down-to-earth as well. Um, and I think maybe a little more proper, do you think, John? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't think he was going to be, he was very spontaneous, but I think he was a little more proper mm-hmm. than... But he, goes than back, he went back to those days when, when the announcements on the air were, were quite proper, and it was yep. an honor to come into your living room. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was, that was yeah. the way that he was, he was brought up. Not stiff, but formal, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yes. Yeah. No, he was not stiff, but you're right. He was formal is probably a better word. But not stiff, yeah. Right. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Elliot Lewis. Elliot Lewis was, again, uh, very nice, very down-to-earth. We met him uh, one of the first times, and I don't think we were there, though, but he was at a Spurdvac meeting. I think we met him at Pacific Pioneer Broadcasters, I think, and we got to know him pretty well. Uh, met him on several occasions, and... So he was one of those people we could call. He said, you need something, call. And in many instances, when we had a question maybe about a show he had done, or in some cases an audition show, or the Command Radio Theater, he had a company. Uh, Wasn't it called Command Productions? I think so, yeah. And he did several auditions. In fact, the audition show that we played today, Three for Adventure, I think, came out of that company. Um, Or when we had another guest like a longtime friend, Howard Duff, we would call and ask him his memories of Howard Duff. And mm-hmm. he would, you know, we'd be recording. He would just go and for a couple of minutes and, and talk about the uh, the wonderful times that he had with Howard, and we would edit it and play it when we had Howard at the Spruitback meeting. So he was just very yeah, we did that. accommodating. And, he was and good at um, extemporaneous. Would you give listeners just a thumbnail sketch of Elliot Lewis? Who he was and what he did? Well, he began as, a, as an actor, of course. Um, I think he was born in New York, if I remember right, or, or spent a lot of time in New York and eventually came out here and did a lot of the radio shows in the 30s and really got a, a major name for himself uh, in comedy later on with Phil Harris and Alice Faye. But he was a dramatic actor first. Yeah, yeah. And then moved into comedy and later directing. One and, then late, and then later on, he wrote books. Yeah, uh, as, a, as a commercial uh, writer. And he w- it was a uh, and a, uh, a detective. Detective books, yeah. the main character. Yeah, 
He did. I did not know that. He wrote detective fiction? I did not know that. I'm sure they're out of print now, but I'll bet you probably could find some. Wow. I I will go out and look. I'm a detective-type person as well. He talks a lot about his books Uh um, on on the interviews that John Dunning did with him. And if you don't if you don't have those, we'll uh, we'll get them to you. Uh, I don't have those. Okay, we'll uh, send you a link where you can actually download them from us. Oh, mm-hmm. super! This is my trick or treat bag tonight. Would yeah. you please put some goodies in it? <laughs> Remley, You'll have to remind us. Oh, uh, uh, no problem. <laughs> I'll be happy to do that. It's not that we're necessarily gullible. It's just that we'll forget. Oh no, it's okay. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to share that with people anymore. <laughs> it's okay. It's pretty evident anyway. It's so okay. We, we don't have to worry about that. But his role as Remley in Phil Harris and Alice Fay, in my opinion, has got to be one of the top ten comedy roles in all of old-time radio. What do you think it is yeah. about him? It sounded so natural. It was, you know, I think that you got to be natural and believable in order to really succeed in radio. Yes. And most actors and actresses were. But he defined it, and I don't know what it was that he did differently. But He, he did- had an innocence about his stupidity, and his stupidity was so intelligent, <laughs> you, I, just, you just had to buy the package. I think it, it, but it was, his, it was his delivery. Uh-huh. He was just a sweet, innocent person. I mean, yeah. it was like, how come you didn't think about this? And he made you believe that he really felt that way. Uh-huh. But I I believe that if another actor had been asked to do the Remley role, it wouldn't have been as good. The writing would have been the same, mm-hmm. but it's his delivery that made it special. There, the there other is, guy could have read the lines, yeah. and they would have been funny, but they would not have been as funny. Well, but it was no. a combination of the two. Yeah, oh, sure. You, you are absolutely correct. It's one of my all-time favorite. I would put him up at number one, but I know there are an awful lot of mm-hmm. people who love comedy and comedians who would... Uh, contest that, but I think at least in the top ten. But, but also, it's, it's not only his reading of the lines in terms of his delivery, it's how he played off of Phil Harris. Yes. That also made it really cool. It was yeah, Phil's his, delivery in conjunction with Elliot Lewis's delivery that made those shows so special. Now, I, I keep claiming innocence in old-time radio because I've been interested in it and involved in it for such a short time, especially by comparison to people like the two of you. Uh, incidentally, we are, we're talking with the Gassman brothers tonight, John and Larry Gassman, uh, for people who might have tuned in a little bit late. But I think with um, Elliot Lewis, he had a perfection in timing that I've never heard anywhere else. I think you're right. He knew exactly how much space he needed between Phil Harris's line and the beginning of his. And sometimes he sometimes he he subscribed to the to the Orson Welles credo, which was leave a little space. Mm-hmm. You know, like in, in in War of the Worlds. You know, there's all kinds of he hit the the um, I forgot who it was now who played the part, but it's the guy who said, "Is there anybody on the air? Mm-hmm. Is there?" Anybody on the air? He, you know, he he wasn't afraid to let silence work for him. Right. And Elliot Lewis did that a lot. You know, you would expect him to be right on top of Phil Harris's line, and he'd wait a second. Yep. And then the audience would start laughing. He didn't have to say anything. They and that's just what knew something so was coming. They knew something yeah, was absolutely. coming, and they were ready for it. And his versatility in the roles that he played, he just, um, Phil Carney 
with the Scarlet Queen, the captain of the Scarlet yeah. Queen. Mm -hmm. That was such a different role, and he was equally superb. Yes, he was. And well, that's, that's one of my favorite it, shows. That's what made it such a good director, because he knew exactly what he wanted and how to bring it out in others. Remarkable person. Tell, talk to yeah. me about Howard Duff. Howard Duff was tough, because, I mean, he was a nice guy, but he... He gave. It was tough in terms of an interview because, well, Larry can tell you more than anybody else because Larry interviewed him. But he gave very short answers. He didn't expand on what he was talking about. And so yet, yet I've heard other interviews that he's done. Um, oh, in the last week or two, maybe. Um, and, and he didn't do that. Well, then it was because you were blind. That's what I had to do. Maybe so. Yeah. yeah. Well, didn't you also say, Larry, that sometime? The performers might have been surprised what you guys knew because you were so young. Well, that that could be, mm -hmm. yeah. And we looked young, or I did at the time. Um, I looked younger, like yeah, three minutes. Three minutes younger, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but I think maybe that's part of it because he acted differently to um, the people at WTIC, Ed Corcoran and, or Ed, and uh, Dick Pertell. He, he was a lot different. Now, they're older. They were older. So maybe that had something to do with it. When, she, when, he entered, when Chuck Shaden interviewed him, he wasn't that way. He was pretty lucid and pretty uh, spontaneous. So, And it might have been, maybe I caught him on a bad day. Who knows? But, boy, it was like pulling teeth, and that wasn't his fault. You know, he would just answer questions quickly. And uh, maybe five, ten-second answers, and that was it. Do actors... Um, I said that wrong. Do performers sometimes pick up characteristics of the characters that they play? Like, did, was he giving you Sam Spade-type answers to your no. questions? No. no, I don't think so. No, not at all. Interesting. Um, he, uh, he, he was giving me, you know, good answers, but they were quick and short. Nothing warm and fuzzy, huh? No, not really. Here well, that's Howard calling that's Howard right now. Uh-oh, there's Howard. Hello there, you are on with John and Larry Gassman and Patricia. Hello, Patricia. Hello, John and Larry. Hi, Jim. How are you, Jim? I haven't talked to you in quite a few years. Great to hear your voices again on Yesterday USA. A couple of questions. For, I may have missed this in your early part. When you started collecting, did you do a lot of trading at first, or did you get order from commercial dealers to build up your collection, especially in 1970 and those early years before Spurback? Ordered from radio reruns for, for a, well, probably a year or so. Maybe more. Until we began to find out about people we could trade with. And, uh, and we still ordered from time to time after that, too, but the bulk of it was trading. Mm-hmm. And a couple of other questions. Uh, in your years of collecting, did you have, and hearing all of these many thousands of shows, have you come up with a favorite in the various genres, like your favorite comedy, your favorite Western, and maybe your favorite detective? Well, Western has to be Gunsmoke, Comedy Jack Benny, and Detective, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of good ones, but... Uh, for me, Jack Benny and Gunsmoker are probably my two favorites. Maybe Sam Spade and maybe Richard Diamond in terms of detective yeah. shows. Well, they were, they were very, uh, I certainly agree. I think everybody agrees that Jack Benny was probably the best comedy. I've never heard any argument about that, ever. Also, you mentioned listening to radio in the 60s, like, I guess, things like The Shadow and, and The uh, Third Man and those things that were rerun. 
Did you hear Theater 5? Was it on in Southern California in the 60s when ABC ran that experimental drama series? It was on KHJ, I think. Theater Royale was on KGO up in the Bay Area. And I can't remember whether it was on KBC. But, but yeah, uh, uh, Theater 5 was on KHJ uh, live because it had, really didn't start, you know, until the mid-60s. Was it 60? It was in a 64-65 era. Yeah, it was on live, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a, uh, and of the, of the attempt to revive drama since 62, do you, what do you think the best attempt was? I mean, not, I know Mystery Theater was the most popular, but of, of Theater 5, Sears, Zero Hour, all those attempts to revive radio, what do you think the best post-62 effort was? Sears might have been the best, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, it was very good. The genre and a different genre each night added something to it. And of course, Elliot Lewis was involved in that one. Exactly. And I, I like CBS Radio Mystery Theater too, but I, I enjoyed more what Sears had to offer because they had more variety. It eventually became the the uh, Mutual Radio Theater. Right. Yes, Mystery Theater. Yeah, those that didn't catch on with the public. And do you think today? I know Radio Today is so heavily formatted with news and talk, do you think there's any chance in commercial radio today that a, I know they're doing the Twilight Zone and Imagination Theater on few stations, but do you think there's any chance that network radio today could uh, do a new dramatic series? Well, they would have to invest in primarily newer actors because there aren't too many of the old guys left. Um, so I'm not sure whether they would be willing to invest in, in new drama. And I'm wondering how many people could actually do it well. They could yeah. do it, but could they do it well? I, I think you could have some local attempts. I don't know that anybody has the passion that Hyman Brown had to do it on a, commer on a, on a network basis anymore. Uh, Jim French is the closest now, and he is a syndicated. It's well done. Yes, it is. And Carl Amari's Twilight Zone is pretty good, although he has said in recent times, and I don't know what the future of that is, he says they were going to start doing new original shows, but I haven't heard that yet. They still seem to be the basic old reruns of the television show. Uh, we, I mean, we have not talked to Carl in quite a while, so it might be kind of a good idea maybe, maybe to think about that and maybe have him on the show and have him talk about it. Yeah, it would be a good...